I want to begin reading at the last line in verse 22. Paul speaks to all men, Jews and Gentiles, when he says this, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When you purchase a diamond, the jeweler displays the stones on a piece of black velvet. He knows that a dark backdrop brightens the appearance of the diamonds. Likewise, in Romans chapter 3, Paul displays the diamonds of salvation. He exhibits magnificent stones. God's glory and grace shine and twinkle for all to see. God invites the world into his gallery to gawk and gaze and show gratitude for the brilliant salvation that he offers us. But you see, Paul is a shrewd jeweler. He presents these diamonds against the black velvet of humanity's sin. The first three chapters of Romans describe the total depravity of the human race. In fact, read these chapters in one sitting and you'll get depressed. The picture is ugly. The outlook is grim. In fact, by the time you reach the middle of Romans chapter 3, mankind is down for the count. We're all lost and condemned and damned for hell. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Verse 10 slams the lid on our coffin. It says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 11 drives the nails into the lid. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Verse 12 lowers the coffin into the ground. There is none who does good. No, not one. Verse 23 shovels the dirt on top of the vault. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there you have it, friends, the death and burial of the entire human race. Paul guns us down with the machine gun of repetition. There is none. 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 Paul uses the none gun to shoot down all of our pride and self-righteousness. The truth of our sin cuts our legs out from under us. It's impossible for us to think that we can stand on our own. And by the middle of chapter 3, the velvet is as dark as it can get. But remember, that's Paul's intention. The darker the backdrop, the brighter the diamonds. Picture Paul the jeweler. He spreads out an ebony cloth and he sprinkles out four sparkling, brilliant stones. On our own, the situation is hopeless. We can never afford these expensive gems on our own. But God has devised a means to obtain them that doesn't depend on us. It's been worked up by God's wisdom. It's been worked out by His grace. It was accomplished and paid for by Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Today, let's marvel at these diamonds of salvation. Paul displays four beautiful gems, justification and redemption 
and propitiation and vindication. And the mere sound of these words should produce goosebumps up and down our spine. They should make us giddy. They should thrill us. They should be music to our ears. But what if we don't understand them at all? These are big words. What's a justification or a redemption or a propitiation or a vindication? Reminds me of the pastor's son, having been raised in the church. This boy had heard all the big terms, justification and propitiation and so forth. But he had never really learned the meaning of these terms. One day at school, the teacher asked her class, what's the definition of the word procrastination? Well, the pastor's son raised his hand. He immediately said, I'm not sure, but I know my church sure believes in it. Well, today, I want to discuss four big words that once you grasp them, they'll become your best friends. You've heard the expression, diamonds are a girl's best friend. Well, that's especially true of Jesus' girl, his bride, the church. These diamonds will win your heart. The first diamond of salvation is justification. Verse 24 tells us that right now, those who trust in Jesus are being justified freely by His grace. Biblically speaking, to justify a person is to treat them as if they've always been just and righteous and sinless. It's to be viewed by God just as if I'd never sinned. This is how God treats us if we put our faith in Jesus. Once there was a rich English gentleman, he purchased a Rolls Royce. And he had the car shipped over to France where he planned a road trip across the continent of Europe. Yet a few days into his journey, the car broke down. Well, the man called the dealership back in England to see if they could provide him some assistance. Well, immediately a crew of mechanics were flown across the English Channel. These men worked nonstop until the repairs were complete. It was amazing service. But when the man arrived home to England after his trip, He expected a hefty bill for the extraordinary service that the Rolls-Royce mechanics had provided. But a bill never came. After a few weeks, he called about the costs. He was surprised when the clerk at the dealership replied, What bill? The man was astonished. He said, Why, the bill for the repairs you made on my car in France. Again, the clerk said, What repairs? He said, well, surely you remember the team of mechanics that flew to France to work on my car. Just check your records. And that's when the woman answered him firmly, sir, I'm sorry, but we have no record of any Rolls Royce ever breaking down and needing repairs. Now, that's the way every car dealership should operate. Understand, justification doesn't mean that God ignores our breakdowns or that he treats us or he treats them as if they didn't matter. He fixes us, but he keeps no record of our malfunctions. He considers our sin as having never happened. It's under the blood of Jesus. God services us, and he tunes us up, and he fixes our flats, and he repairs the damage caused by our sin. Then he never charges us a dime. Now, that's a good warranty. Justification includes forgiveness. But it's more than forgiveness. See, forgiveness is me paying off your credit card debt. But that doesn't mean you can't go out and run it up again. Justification goes further. 
It's me paying off your debt, but then supplying you a line of credit so that you'll always have a positive balance. Jesus guarantees his followers that that will never get caught with insufficient funds. Notice too, verse 24 doesn't say we've been justified. It says we are being justified. This is amazing. This is a continuous tense. God constantly treats us as if we'd never sinned, even if we do. How he handles us remains the same. Of course, it grieves God when we sin. And he works to mature us so that it doesn't keep happening. But God never allows our sin to alter how he chooses to treat us. God has never once told one of his children, Okay, sister, that's it. I've had enough of you. Or, Okay, buddy, hit the road. Don't come back until you straighten out your mess. God has never said to a believer in Jesus, Forget about my blessing until you measure up. Justification is God's decision to favor me and bless me despite of my sin because of His Son, Jesus Christ. We all need to settle this issue once and for all in our minds and in our hearts. As long as we're trusting in Jesus, He is committed to treating us as justified. Do you realize how this works out? You never should feel, you never again should feel timid or fearful about approaching God. Even when you're not doing so well, He still wants you to call on Him. He's as ready to bless you when you're struggling as when you're soaring because His blessing is never contingent on you, but on what His Son Jesus has done for you. The doctrine of justification means that the terms by which God treats us never, ever change. I read about a Bible college professor. He was a godly man. He, whenever he walked into the classroom, he just sort of oozed with God's grace and radiated God's glory. His students wanted to uncover the secret of his holy and heavenly life. And so one night, they hid in the bushes outside his windows. They wanted to listen to this spiritual man pray. They anticipated a pleading and fervent and passionate prayer. They were shocked when the old man... He jumped into bed, pulled the covers up, and then he sighed. God, I thank you that we're on the same old terms. And that's what it means to be justified. That no matter what happens or how well I perform in Christ, I am always on the same old terms with God. So let's go back to that earlier picture. Diamond dealing Paul, he spreads out an ebony cloth over the glass countertop. And then he opens up a little pouch and he gently sprinkles out these sparkling, brilliant diamonds. The girl by your side, she squeals. She latches onto your arms so tightly that it cuts off a circulation. But something happens. You start gazing at the price tags. Beads of perspiration begin to pop up on your forehead. That wad of money you brought in that's in your wallet is shrinking quickly. But now imagine the salesman. He puts all of those diamonds back into the pouch, and then he hands it to you, and he says, Take them. They're yours. These diamonds are my gift to you. Just enjoy them, be thankful for them, and tell other people about them. If that happened, you'd faint on the spot. Yet that is exactly what God has done. 
These diamonds are free. They're his gift to us. Verse 24 says that we've been justified freely. The word translated freely means without a cause. There's nothing in us or about us, nothing we've done or are or ever hope to do that warrants this kind of treatment. Verse 25 tells us that the price was paid by his blood. This is what Jesus did on the cross. His sacrifice enabled God's love to treat me and you as justified. Now it comes to me as grace. It's unmerited favor. It's love that's on the house. No human virtue can merit this kind of treatment. The only explanation for why God deals with me so kindly is that he loves me. Once a little boy visited the Washington Monument. He walked up to the soldier on duty. He pulled out a quarter and he asked if he could buy the monument. Well, the soldier chuckled, not for a quarter, but this little wheeler dealer, he wasn't done. He said, I thought you'd say that, and then he pulled out another dime. After the soldier had finished laughing, he explained. He said, Sonny, there's three things that you need to know. First, you can't buy the Washington Monument, not for 35 cents or for $35 million. It's far too expensive. Second, this monument is not even for sale. And third, if you're an American citizen, you don't need to buy this monument, for it already belongs to you. And the same is true about the diamonds of salvation. Many believers long to feel forgiven and confident in their relationship with God. They want to believe that God is as good as I've described Him. But our confidence wanes in light of our own weaknesses. When I'm burdened down by my own sin and guilt and failure, I tend to draw back from God. I assume I have to earn my way back into His favor. I start to assume after what I've done, I need to buy the monument. But like the monument, justification is not for sale. It's too expensive, friends. None of us could buy such treatment. It requires what we don't have, sinless blood. Besides, if you put your faith in Jesus, it belongs to you anyway. We are justified not because of us, but in spite of us. Try to make yourself deserving and you miss the point. We're justified by God's grace. Well, the second diamond of salvation is redemption. In verse 24, Paul adds that we've been justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, there are several, several Greek words that get translated into English by this one word, redemption. One is the word agorazo. It's from the word agora, which referred to the center city in Greek metropolises. The agora was the marketplace where the slaves were auctioned and sold. The word is connected to the purchase of a slave. And this is our story. If you're a Christian, you are now the purchased possession of Jesus Christ. See, he holds the title deed to your life. Through the blood of his son, God purchased you out of sin slavery. You're no longer your own. You now belong to Jesus. You serve him. But the word agorazo is not the word used here. There's another Greek word translated redemption, and that's ex agorazo. It too refers to the purchase of a slave, but ex agorazo speaks of permanence. See, many Roman landowners, they would buy the slaves to help in the fields, and then they would sell them back after the harvest. But a slave purchased ex agorazo was never returned, he became his master's permanent possession. 
And this is also how Jesus sees you and me. His plan is not to use us up and then trade us in. He loves us and he wants us forever. You are his permanently, ex agarazo. But neither is that the word used in our text. The word translated redemption in verse 24 is the word latruo. It refers to the practice of purchasing a slave for the purpose of setting him or her free. And this is also what Jesus has done for you. He bought you out of spiritual slavery to set you free from pain and guilt and sin. All that's been holding you back and keeping you down. Jesus wants to deliver us. He redeems or he purchases us in order to restore to us all that our creator meant for us to be. For years, two factory workers labored side by side in the same plant. One was the classic underachiever. He was always late, perpetually lazy, always on the verge of getting fired. But one day, his co-worker noticed a remarkable change in this man. Overnight, this slothful fellow became a productive employee. He began to care about his job. He was a pleasure to work beside. His entire attitude was transformed. And his co-worker wanted to know why. He heard an amazing story. You see, while in college, this fellow had been involved in a fraternity hazing. One night, they had taken some of the freshmen to a long, dark gravel road for a so-called test of nerve. They put the freshmen in the middle of the road, and they drove straight at them. The kids were supposed to wait as long as possible before leaping to safety. Tragically, one of the young men froze. The factory worker was driving the car that hit the boy going 70 miles per hour. This man's foolish action haunted him for the rest of his life. He avoided prosecution, but he dropped out of school. He became an alcoholic. He could never recover. That one incident sucked the life right out of him. He lost all motivation. He could never forget the look of terror on that boy's face just before his car ran over him. That is until one day. The worker received a visitor. It was the mother of the young man that he had killed. She said she had hated him for years and she had plotted her revenge many, many times. But recently she had given her life to Jesus and now she wanted to forgive the man who had killed her son. The man said that to his friend, he said about his, the mother's visit, he said, I looked deep into her eyes and I received permission to be the kind of man I might have been had I never killed that boy. Her forgiveness changed my life. It was the mother's pardon that brought this man his freedom. And this is the meaning of redemption. If you look closely at the cross of Jesus, you too will find permission to start over. He wants to help you be the person that you might have been or perhaps should have been. This is why Jesus purchased you to set you free and to make you all he intended you to be from the beginning. Whatever you've done, what's haunted you for years, please listen to God's word to you this morning. You're forgiven. I told you these diamonds of salvation were beautiful. I mean dazzling stones. And the third diamond is equally spectacular. It's the jewel called propitiation. Verse 25 refers to Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith. 
to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Notice in times past, when judgment was due, God restrained his hand. God held back. See, there were countless occasions when God would have been just and fair in exterminating the whole human race. But he passed on the opportunity. Acts 17 verse 30 tells us that in times past, God winked at sin. In other words, he closed his eyes to the evil around him. And it wasn't that sin didn't bother him. It bothered him greatly. I don't know about you, but I've gotten to the point where it's hard for me to even watch the nightly news. With all that's going on in our world, it riles me. It upsets me. Here's a sample of a single evening recently. A 12-year-old boy was used as a heroin mule. Drug dealers forced him to swallow 87 condoms filled with heroin. Same night, a suicide bomber killed six people and injured 86 others. Same news report, a teenager sexually assaulted and killed his 22-month-old niece. And the list goes on and on. It's tough to stomach this stuff on a regular basis. It makes you downright mad. But if it angers me and you, how do you think God feels? I'm exposed to this evil for a mere 22 minutes on the nightly news. While God sees every grimy act done in every slimy place all over this planet, He gets extremely angry, and rightly so. I read about the awful ordeal of a man named Robert Hardy. Hardy lived in Tyler, Texas. He woke up one night and he checked on his three-month-old son. When he walked into the boy's room, he found that the bassinet had been tipped over. Well, he quickly ran back into the bedroom to see if his wife had the baby. She didn't. They both ran downstairs in search of their child. When Hardy went into his study, he noticed that the glass top on the tank where he kept his pet python was pushed over. Here's what happened. The 12-foot snake had escaped its tank, slithered up the stairs, tipped over the bassinet, and ate the baby. Hardy was so enraged. He was so furious. You can imagine. He ran outside. He found an axe. He came back and he chopped that snake into a thousand pieces. And who would have blamed him? No one would argue that that snake got what it deserved. And in the same way, God is infuriated when he looks down on the snake-like actions of humankind. Predators slither along, consuming innocent people. God is outraged at the rapists and the child molesters and the terrorists and the like. And if that's not enough, he sees some blasphemous celebrity mocking his son, the son he sacrificed to save us from our sin. God's holy sensibilities are continually being trampled on and violated. And not only by the snake-like actions of others, but I have to confess there have been times when I have slithered with the best of them. We've all been guilty of satisfying ourselves at the expense of other people. I'm sure God was tempted many times over the ages to pick up his axe and chop up the snakes. But he waited. He waited for a day 2,000 years ago. The day he nailed his son, Jesus Christ, 
to a Roman cross. It was there that God vented His anger toward the sin of the world. God brought down His axe on His only Son. You see, the reason God winked at sin in the past and suppressed His righteous rage is that He planned all along to take out His wrath on His own Son, Jesus. Sandy deserves to be hacked. You deserve to be hacked up. Yet God unleashed His anger towards our sin on His only begotten Son. I'm telling you, this is love that moistens my eyes. This is love that boggles my brain. How could God love us that much? And yet He does. Which brings us to the definition of this long word, propitiation. It means to appease or to placate. God's justice is satisfied legally through justification, but it is satisfied emotionally through propitiation. See, there were two very similar sacrifices in the Old Testament. The sin offering covered a person's sin, while the burnt offering presented a sweet aroma to God. The sin offering justified man, while the burnt offering satisfied God. And today, the cross of Jesus does both. When we trace this Greek word translated propitiation to its Hebrew origin, we discover that it's the same word translated in the Old Testament as the mercy seat. You remember in Jerusalem's temple, God's glory rested over an oblong-shaped box called the Ark of the Covenant. This was the two-foot-by-four-foot gold box that Indiana Jones stole from the Nazis. In this ark were the stone tablets given to Moses on which were written the Ten Commandments. God intended to meet man over the ark as we obeyed the law written on those commandments, on those tablets. But this doesn't bode well for sinners like us, for we fall short of God's commandments. None of us are perfect in keeping those commandments. And since we're unable to meet the sacred standards, how can we meet with God? The law literally cries out for our judgment. And yet, thankfully, God put a lid on the law. For over the top of the ark sat a golden lid called the mercy seat. This was the place where the priest sprinkled the sacrificial blood that was shed for sin. That blood paid for mankind's penalty for breaking the law and at the same time conveyed the mercy that prompted that sacrifice. See, if you'd lived in Old Testament times and wanted to meet with God and receive His mercy, there was only one place you could go. You went to the mercy seat. And Paul tells us that Jesus is now our mercy seat. He calls Jesus our propitiation or our place of mercy. Jesus alone kept God's commands. He earned a right standing with God that can now be passed on to us. So where can I find God today? Where can we meet our maker and discover his kindness? There's still only one place. The cross of Jesus is God's place of mercy. And then there's one more, one final diamond on display here in this morning's text. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul explains how your salvation has become God's vindication. Justification, redemption, propitiation. These first three diamonds, they they produce in us a comfort and a hope and an assurance. They created me a sigh of relief. 
But this last diamond of salvation, it takes my breath away. If these first three diamonds reflect God's grace, then this fourth one reveals his glory. For Paul tells us (coughs) that on the cross, our Lord Jesus vindicated the character of God. That in a single stroke of genius, God became both just and the justifier. Understand, we look at the cross of Christ from a very narrow, selfish point of view. We we tend to focus only on what Jesus did for us. What we've talked about this morning, justification and redemption and propitiation. But there is another, even more beautiful side of the cross. Years ago, songwriter Steve Camp, he wrote a song entitled, Christ died for God. What a provocative title. Jesus not only died for you, but he also died for God. His motivation wasn't merely our salvation, but God's vindication. Realize our sin puts God in an awkward position. God is pulled in two directions. On the one hand, his justice demands that sinners be punished. He he should get... We should get what's coming to us. But on the other hand, his love compels him to forgive us and fix us. God wants to help us, but justice won't let sin slide. Think about America's judicial system today, the crisis of confidence that we suffer. We let too many blatant blatant criminals walk. They get off with a slap on the wrist. No wonder we question if our courts are even capable of meeting out justice. See, God will not allow that erosion of confidence to occur in His court. That's why as much as He loves us, God can't allow guilty people just to get off scot-free. And that's why Christ died for God. On the cross, Jesus made a way for God to save us and save face at the same time. Through Jesus' work on Calvary's cross, sin was punished and sinners were forgiven. Jesus satisfied justice and he set us free. The story's told of a time when nomadic tribes roamed Siberia, much the way that the American Indians covered the Great Plains. One Russian tribe had a strong, wise ruler. This chief was very respected. Once it was discovered that his camp had fallen victim to a series of thefts, this mighty chief ordered that the perpetrator be caught and beaten with ten lashes. But the thefts continued. The chief upped the punishment to twenty, even forty lashes. Of course, everyone knew forty lashes would be a death sentence. The only tribe member strong enough to survive that kind of beating was the chief himself. What a shock it was when the thief turned out to be the chief's own mother. The chief was tempted to let his mom go, but he couldn't. He was a man of his word. Justice had to be served. The woman was tied to a stump. The executioner readied his whip. And just as he was about to administer his first blow, the chief walked over to the stump and draped his huge body over his frail mother. And the chief took her 40 lashes. Only God is strong enough to execute justice and be executed for love. Only God can take the full brunt of our sin and at the same time win our forgiveness. God became a man and He draped His body over all those who trust in Him. 
He is now a righteous judge and a loving son. And I'm proud of him for being both. Well, as they say, diamonds are a girl's best friend. And they may be, but these diamonds of salvation should be every Christian's best friend. Justification, redemption, propitiation, vindication. Have you received God's gift? And if you receive these these diamonds, are you proud of them? Do you wear them close to your heart and everywhere you go? Do you think about them? Talk about them? Count them as your greatest treasure? I hope so. Well, today, you need to realize that you have a friend in the diamond business. (laughs) And his name is Jesus Christ.